This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. So, Sarah, in, in the buddy comedy that is Seeing and Believing, which one of us would you say is the by-the-book straight man, and which one of us is the loose cannon who plays by their own rules? Well, you did say straight man, and you are a man, and the loose cannon has no gender, so I'm going to assume that I am the loose cannon, and you must be the straight man. Fair enough. I can't argue with that. Listeners, we are going to be talking about two buddy movies on this week's episode. First up is a film from the Indian film industry we've heard so much about. We're looking forward to digging into it on this week's episode. That is S.S. Rod. Jamuli's RRR. And then we're going to keep on with the buddy dynamic by watching a not really buddy cop, but maybe buddy detective movie. We're going to be covering Shane Black's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in the watch list. Uh, are we going to get some, some bickering odd couple energy going on in this week's episode? I mean... I could bicker. I'm capable of bickering. We'll see, we'll see if we can get a good bicker going. Well, we'll see how that goes on this week's episode, episode 342 of Seeing and Believing. Yes, we're here on episode 342 of Seeing and Believing, and I just want to take this opportunity right now, Sarah, to say thank you for uh, becoming the other half of the odd couple Mm -hmm. for this podcast. Uh, You know, we've got a little bit of... Uh, I don't know if we bicker quite as much as the the heroes of a stereotypical Shane Black buddy comedy, but, you know. We'll get there, eventually. uh, Eventually, you know, we'll get to that sort of uh, odd couple dynamic. But for now, we'll we'll keep things, you know, civil, collegial, Mm -hmm. all that good stuff. We are going to be talking about a Shane Black comedy a little bit later on in the show with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to getting your thoughts on that movie. But I'm... Looking forward even more to getting your thoughts about the movie here in this first half. So this is uh, a movie that you you and I, we both were hearing a lot about mm-hmm. uh, earlier in the year when it first came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's an Indian film, so it didn't get quite the kind of huge release that an American film, an English language film would be getting, obviously. But even so, its reputation kind of preceded it. Mm-hmm. And I can say, you know, it's... That kind of uh, word of mouth is probably justified. Oh, yeah. Would you say? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) So the movie we're talking about here is RRR, a.k.a. Rise, Roar, Revolt. It's a three-hour Indian epic directed by S.S. Rajamuli about two men, Raju, an officer with the colonial British police force, and Bean, the champion of a forest tribe who's on a mission to recover one of his village's girls who has been kidnapped by the wickedest British people this side of Braveheart. (laughs) The two become fast friends during a daring rescue, not realizing that Bean is the very person whom Raju has pledged to hunt down for his British superiors. Twists, turns, action, and music and dance ensue as their fraught relationship leads to an outright violent conflict with their British colonizers. So, I mean, I feel like that uh, synopsis maybe covers the first 
third of the movie, first half maybe. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on in this movie. Yes. It's it's uh it's got a lot going on. And Sarah, you and I we were talking about this before the show began. Neither of us is what I would call an expert on yeah. Indian movies, Bollywood movies. Um, I think I've seen I've seen only a handful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me at least, watching RRR was uh, a journey in kind of entering a world with completely different cinematic conventions. And I'm really curious to maybe get us started with a conversation on that theme. What was it like for you, mm-hmm. since you're kind of in a similar space with me about Indian films, uh, what was it like for you entering into those completely different cinematic conventions and sensibilities? And how did that affect your overall experience with the movie? Yeah, it's funny because I think this movie feels like there's been a lot of hype and a lot of like talking it up as this is the wildest movie you're ever going to see, especially this year. Um and knowing that I don't know a ton about Bollywood or Tollywood, because this is a Tollywood movie, um, knowing that I don't know a ton about that, I think I went in with a little bit of trepidation, not because I was intimidated by the subject matter or anything like that, but knowing that I'm coming in basically completely blank, no cultural background, very little understanding of a lot of the stuff that's going to be alluded to in this movie. And I think... The nice thing is this is definitely a movie that teaches you how to watch it as you're watching it, which Mm -hmm. I appreciated quite a bit. And the way that it teaches you to do that is to just go pedal to the metal nonstop the entire time. Um, I really it was kind of refreshing to engage with a movie that just has completely different movie making conventions. The camera moves a little bit differently, um, different emotions and reactions, like get a little bit more or less like reaction time, depending on what's going on on screen. Um, It feels like there's a heavy emphasis on rule of cool that is very much like, and yet completely unlike what Michael Bay would do necessarily. And I don't know, it was, it was refreshing and it was a little bit intimidating. And I had, I had a blast watching this movie. (laughs) I don't know about you. I'm curious before I I give my reaction, you you mentioned the phrase rule of cool. You want to elaborate a little bit on, on what you, you mean by that? If it looks cool on screen, you do it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because I think that's definitely a rule that this movie follows. Mm -hmm. If, if there is uh, something that's going to do to just really just amp up the state, in any way it can, Rajamuli does that thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm uh, in a similar place with you in that I just, there's an audacity to this movie that I, you know, obviously I can't speak to how audacious it is relative to other movies from that region, mm-hmm. but I can say that in comparison to the kinds of blockbusters that we're getting in American multiplexes, it's audacious. Yes. Um, this this is the sort of movie that we don't even get the title card until almost 45 minutes into the runtime mm-hmm. because Rajamuli is going to set up the you know each of the main characters with their own extended action sequence and then he's going to have them come together in another extended action sequence where they work together and then that's when the movie starts. Yes. And that I think is just the, that kind of maximalist approach to to character and also to storytelling that I really appreciated. This is not a what I would call a super complex film, but it's very it's very savvy in the way that it makes the characters very clear from the outset. We we know each of them pretty well. We know what they want. Mm-hmm. We know what they don't want. Uh, their emotional connection is made crystal clear from the very outset. And when those things are established, you can really, the sky's the limit. And 
the movie just takes off running with those and the ways that it finds to play with those emotional dynamics makes for something that's really satisfying on an action movie level and also just in terms of uh, an emotional level like it gets its hooks into you and it knows kind of how to play this interpersonal dynamic for maximum drama mm-hmm. yeah exactly it melodrama isn't quite the right word for this because i don't think it's working on like a melodrama like scale or anything but it does seem to be interested in upping the stakes personally and professionally for all of these characters involved at every single possible moment and that feels like one of those hallmarks of melodrama but it's not really that either and i had a hard time kind of categorizing this movie in my head Um, because there is a lot of, like, action, adventure, romance, a little bit of mystery involved, definitely, like, a little bit of of buddy-cop, almost, dynamic in between Beam and Raju. Um, yeah, I don't know, it it, it kind of feels like it's so maximalist that you almost can't quantify it or classify it into any one specific genre. It doesn't feel like it fits neatly into any of those slots. Um... So I know on your letterbox, you actually described this kind of as like Battleship Potemkin-esque mm-hmm. a little bit. And we can get into that a little bit um, more later. I would argue it's almost more Top Gun than anything else. Because it's kind of in that similar vein of over-the-top, like, kind okay. of nationalistic storytelling that is also very much revolving around the relationship between two characters who are polar opposites to each other. So I'm curious to know if you read on That's- that. That's, you know, so I made the the Battleship Potemkin comparison mostly because, um, I mean, this is a very nationalistic movie. I mm-hmm. don't think it's unfair to to say that it work, it functions very well as propaganda. And I don't mean propaganda in any sort of derogatory sense. I mean that purely descriptively in that it's very interested in getting you hyped up to see the Indian guys beat the bad guys. Yes. And I, I think that that's something that battleship potemkin does as well it's really interested in just making you want to cheer for the revolutionaries Mm -hmm. and i think that's you know battleship potemkin has that in spades this movie has it in spades that said it's a very good point that you make that it's not like potemkin in that potemkin doesn't really have a protagonist per se there's a veneer of like historicity to potemkin i think right it's 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 very you, you get very invested in uh, the revolution succeeding in Potemkin, but you don't really have a personal connection to um, to any individual character in Potemkin in the way that you do here. And I think comparing it to Top Gun crystallizes that a little bit because it is about kind of you know the nationalistic fervor and wanting to see these evil colonizers get their comeuppance and to you know, have these freedom fighters succeed in uh, fighting for freedom. (laughs) But it also wants you to care about these two guys. And I I think the attention it lavishes on them kind of just being bros is, I think, maybe the the better part of the move or the, the the part of the movie that I just I really connected with. There's there's a whole act of the movie that's devoted to beam. Uh, He's kind of developed uh feelings for a british woman named jenny Mm -hmm. and uh raju just spends 
a good, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes of the film just being the best wingman in the universe and getting the, getting these two crazy lovebirds together. And that's just a lot of fun to watch, even if it doesn't necessarily have a whole, like she's more a plot device than a person. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have a whole lot to do with the, the main, like the, the, the main plot thread of the film, but it's, it's fun and it leads to the best song and dance number of the entire film so for my money it's worth it yeah it's yeah their relationship's a little bit more of a means to an end because like once you have access to her you have access to the entire british compound which allows you to like launch your sneak attack which we will talk about because that's an incredible action yes we will um but i i would argue that it does have more like function than just the plot because i think it's not just about these two characters like being the best bros that they possibly can be in order to like get one of them like introduced to a girl (laughs) i think it also really helps to serve to strengthen their relationship to each other as well and that's definitely the more important relationship throughout the entire movie like it's not just that raju wants beam to like succeed at getting the ladies or anything like that um that kind of feels secondary to the entire plot. All of these characters do have love interests, but they're they're definitely more of like connective tissue to other parts of the story. Like Jenny is a good way to get into the compound. Raju has a love interest back home who kind of keeps him, like reminds him who he's fighting for essentially. But the real important relationship is between these two characters. And I think a strength of the movie is that that relationship gets strengthened even when these two guys are also off like pursuing their other respective interests, if that makes any sense. Like mm-hmm. um, that dance sequence um, where the two basically just dance the, the Brits into the dirt <laughs> is absolutely delightful um, because it's just so joyous and it's, it's so defiant in the face of the elitism that the colonizers have, are like trying to display over the people that they've colonized. Like there's a character who, who comes up to beam and basically challenges him to a dance off and says like, can you dance all of these different ways that I can? And he's incredibly disrespectful as he does it. Like he even goes so far as to shove his foot into beam's face. And Raju comes in and just sort of like breaks everything apart, starts playing the drums, like on a, on a really sick beat, honestly. <laughs> and then the two of them just dance everybody else at the party that they're at into the ground and then they proceed to compete with each other and i think that there's there's a line that's kind of it feels like the linchpin of this entire movie where one of them looks at the other and says like i looked you in the face and i knew that i wanted to compete with you (laughs) and that level of competition and friendly rivalry like being channeled towards also fighting for freedom is is something that like i don't know it's an interesting tension because it's not necessarily at odds with each other but i think it does introduce some interesting friction in interesting ways because of the, the two of them have extremely different methods in their freedom fighting and a lot of the conflict in the story isn't necessarily just we're fighting against the British. It's also, we're fighting against the British in very different ways and have different philosophies about that. And I think that that plus their friendship is really fascinating storytelling. I mean, if, if that's a, a linchpin bit of dialogue, I would, I would add that the, the linchpin kind of image is during at, at the culmination of that first big action sequence with both of them. It's, it's, it's the thing that leads into the title card. Uh, they, they've, they've, uh, swung on the same piece of rope from opposite sides of a bridge so that they kind of swing towards each other and meet in the middle on the underside of the bridge. Mm-hmm. And they, they grasp each other's forearms, sort of like stop their 
stop the their swinging mm -hmm. and um that sort of like each of them grasping the other's forearm with one arm is an image both of of fraternal respect and support but it's also a, like the the way that it focuses just on on their muscles and the grip it also uh there's there's a little bit of um adversarial mm. um uh, tenor to that as well, hmm. and and that's I, maybe the the heart of the film as well is that they they are uh, as as they describe each other later on in the film they're they're best friends and yet uh, the differing ways that they seek to achieve their goals um, puts them in conflict with each other and that's also kind of that is a different note to play in their relationship that makes it, you know, so it's not just all, it's not all just fun time, you know, dancing people to the dirt over in RRR land. It's also, um, they have very serious goals and you, you both of them can't win, mm -hmm. uh, in, in that, or at least at the, at, in the first half of the film, both of them can't win. And I actually kind of want to talk about the construction of this film because it's easy. I think when, we talk about this this movie to make it sound as if it's sort of like oh it's just throwing everything at the wall there's like dance numbers and there's action sequences and there's romance and mystery and it, it makes it sound kind of slapdash but i think that's actually pretty clever about how it structures itself so that you really understand beam from the beginning sort of like what his goal is mm -hmm. and something that you kind of don't fully appreciate about Raju is why he's so devoted to being the best cop he can be. Yeah. And the revelation for his reasoning behind that, I think is a really strong moment of the film. And the fact that Rajamuli withholds that until the point in the film that he does mm -hmm. is a large reason for this movie working the way it does. It, it doesn't, it's a long movie, but you kind of are pulled through it by just wanting to know why why is this character the way he is and when that revelation finally arrives you kind of wonder okay well why what is this character going to do in order to achieve those goals i'm being mm -hmm. purposely vague because i don't want to spoil that revelation mm -hmm. but i think it's really a strong one yeah i think a lot of the criticism that i've heard and read lately about this movie kind of treats it as like a, a dude's rock sort of movie and i think mm -hmm. like you'd said that kind of implies a little bit of of haphazardness to the construction and this movie is very carefully constructed in order to draw like the most possible drama and the most pot like the highest possible stakes out of every single revelation every single character interaction you meet both of these characters and you know who they are individually right at the very beginning, but you don't understand their individual motivations necessarily until those revelations are made. And I think it's crucial that Beam's motivation is made right after both characters have been introduced and Raju's motivation isn't introduced until right after the intermission. But in between all of that, there's kind of this repeated refrain of both of them grasping arms with each other. And sometimes it's adversarial and sometimes it's in play. And then sometimes it's in genuine like teamwork. So they're grasping forearms at one point. At one point during a montage, they're actually like playing tug of war with each other and with a group of other kids from their city. And then at one point, they're sort of dangling from, from a precipice. And some big revelations have been made about both of them <laughs> at that moment in time. 
And they're essentially like depending on each other for their lives. And they also just want to let the other go and they can't do it because their bond is just so strong. And that isn't necessarily alluded to in the dialogue at all. It's purely the image. And I think that that's a a mark of a really strong movie is that it can get all of that information across without having to beat you over the head with it, because there's plenty of other things that it's, it can afford to be over the top about, but not that particular piece of imagery. I think it's strong enough that it just carries through the rest of the movie. It kind of makes me wish now that, I I mean, that I couldn't have picked this movie for the watch list because I think you've already seen it, but it kind of makes me wish that we had watched heat Mm-hmm. For the watchlist segment, because it's exactly the same sort of dynamic. Two, yes. uh, two men, uh, and they're they're always you know their uh, man is a very masculine director, and this is a very masculine film in mm-hmm. its turn. But the you know two men on opposite sides who just they know that the other person is the only one who truly understands what they're going through, even when they're locked in deadly conflict you just got at why i love heat i adore heat i haven't met a michael mann movie i I didn't like honestly Mm -hmm. but heat is is feels like it's one of the pinnacles there i mean and and it's telling too that the final image of heat is two men grasping hands yes and i i i I, man i kind of really want to watch heat right now (laughs) but i i mean that's kind of sensibility is the same even though man is in terms of his aesthetic is very different from Rajamuli here. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk like let's let's get into that aesthetic a little bit more. You mentioned the uh, the uh, th- there's an action sequence in this movie yes. that is far and away the best action sequence I've seen all year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I kind of want to talk about it in detail, and I also don't want to talk about it because I don't want to spoil it for the listeners, mm-hmm. but. Suffice it to say that there's there's some imagery in this in this action sequence and some some choreography that I think is just delightful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that that's that like the structure of the movie sort of speaks to the level of control that Rajamuli has over his movie because again he's not throwing things at the wall to see what sticks. He's very clearly like thought out and planned out what it is that he wants to show and he knows exactly how he wants to show it. Um, and I don't know, like, maybe we, maybe we can talk about one of the very earliest action sequences in the movie, because it is exciting, but it doesn't give away too much. It just tells you enough about Beam in particular. So I'm, I'm thinking about the scene where we first meet Beam. He's in the middle of the woods. They're trying to trap an animal for reasons that will become clear later on in the movie, in which we will not spoil because they're great. <laughs> and the animal they're trying to trap is a wolf. And what they get is a tiger instead. And so the the movie sort of tracks Beam running through the forest at superhuman speeds ahead of this tiger that's chasing him. And throughout the entire sequence, even though you've never been in this, in this location before, he's running from point A to point B in a way that makes you think like this is a long and kind of convoluted path. You never really lose track of who he is or where he is within the sequence. Um, you also don't lose track of the tiger at all. Um, the tiger's also completely CGI. I don't know I don't know if that's been made a ton of, but that's one of the one of the hallmarks of this movie is that every single animal is CGI and there's actually a disclaimer at the beginning that says no animals were harmed because there were no animals involved in the filming. They're all CGI. Um, maybe that lends an, an additional like level of control over over the film perhaps. But I think that you get a really good 
sense for who Beam is as he faces off against this tiger and the way that the camera captures him kind of looking at the tiger like on the eyeline and then also looking at the tiger on the tiger's eyeline as well. But the camera isn't still and it isn't moving in like the steady cam sort of swirling way that I think a lot of American directors would. The camera moves very fluidly as if it is the tiger in a couple of different places. And I don't know, I just, I, I find that technique very fascinating and it took a little bit of getting used to. I, I liked, uh, I, I like the camera work just in terms of the, the positioning and the way it moves during action sequences, not just, you know, like the, you know, fight scenes, but also the, the dance sequences. Mm-hmm. It's so great. Like we, Rajamuli knows when he needs to make cuts in order to build momentum. And he also knows when he just needs to let the camera either sit or, you know, move without cutting mm-hmm. just so we can kind of see what's going on. There's a, a late film. Uh, it, it's not a, there's no dancing involved, but it's a, it's a musical number mm-hmm. where uh, one of the characters is uh, undergoing an, an extreme trial and is sort of finding his inner strength in order to bear up under it. Mm-hmm. And the, the way that Rajamuli um, intercuts between uh, the protagonist and the crowd that is watched, that is witnessing this trial mm-hmm. and uh, the other protagonist who is, uh, who is witnessing it as well from a completely different vantage point mm-hmm. is the, the, the way that he intercuts between those is perfect for um, really investing you in the scene and also getting you really hyped up to, <laughs> to see some good old fashioned revolutionary action take place. Um, it's also very inspiring in terms of the way that it makes the suffering of this protagonist clear without fetishizing it. Mm. So if you think about something like Braveheart, which I actually, you know, I Braveheart, now that we know who Mel Gibson is, is fallen from grace a little bit. I do think that the the filmmaking on display in Braveheart is very strong. Hmm. But one thing that Braveheart does do is it's very much about the violence. Like it's the the violence is bound up in the character's journey in such a way that they're kind of inseparable. Like you you need to see all that blood because that's kind of what gives his journey its heft. Hmm. And what I appreciated about the scene that I'm talking about in RRR is that it is a violent scene. There mm-hmm. is blood involved, but the the way that the character struggles portrayed, it's not him, you know, powering through the pain, it's almost him transcending the pain. Mm-hmm. And that I think is done uh solely through the way that Rajamuli uses camera to emphasize certain details and the way that he uses cutting to, you know, uh, make clear the other character's investment in that scene as well. You make a really good point about the violence in Braveheart and also in this one. And I think part of it might have to do with those two, like these two movies, very distinct worldviews about suffering and about salvation i think um i'm not going to pretend to know a ton about like rrr's specific viewpoint on salvation because i am not familiar with hindu culture at all so that's not my place to bring up but it does feel very much like 
the suffering is not the point. And I think in Braveheart, the suffering very much is the point because that's the only way that you can achieve your ends and achieve your goals. And in, in this one, the suffering is just kind of a, a byproduct of the struggle, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. And the, the ways that uh, we learn about Raju's motivations also makes clear that uh, he's sort of the, the fire. So, uh, so, uh, uh, big dichotomy brought up over the course of the film is that beam is like water Mm -hmm. and Raju's like fire and Raju is definitely the much more violent of the two. Mm -hmm. Um, and beams much more, uh, in tune shown to be much more in tune with, with nature and, uh, a much gentler person in general. And I think the, the way that Rajamuli uses those two characters to as, as foils for each other, um, is an interesting way of portraying kind of the revolutionary struggle mm-hmm. um, and kind of allowing us to sympathize with both of them while also recognizing that there are shortcomings to, to, to both approaches and kind of how complementary they are in, in coming together in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point too. I, part of me wonders if Raju's choice of um, vocation has a little bit to do with with that fire and that confrontational nature a little bit like kind of kind of approaching defeating I don't know like we're working against the British Empire as a revolutionary but also using their same methods at the same time I don't know that's kind of a half-baked thought I, it's something that came up there there's a, a scene where he's he is he's writing back to to his love back in his hometown where he specifically mentions uh, that he's you know he's he's working towards a certain goal but he's just he's not sure if it's right or wrong anymore and he's he's being have doubts about whether employing the the violent methods he has been whether it's it's doing something to him and he's losing something in that process that he can't quite get back. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a really compelling question that I I enjoyed mulling over when in the very few moments of the film where it kind of like invites you to sort of like be very quiet. <laughs> and that, that's not a criticism. But I do think that there are some points of this film where I, I do kind of feel like maybe a little bit of restraint would have been nice to kind of... Hmm. Uh, both allow me to sort of make these connections on my own, which is gratifying, but also kind of allow some more reflective moments to sit with the scale with which Rajamuli is kind of painting the, this uh, relationship dynamic between these two protagonists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I think as I was watching this movie, I was very gung-ho about the entire thing, just like very much, yes, yes, give me more. I want to see more and not really being at all that reflective about it. Um, I don't know. I I feel like it kind of, it swept me up in a way that I didn't fully expect it to. And at the same time, like I was sort of primed for just given like the critical reception for this movie. And the more I think about it with like the more um, distance that I've been getting from this movie, I kind of want to watch it again after having read up on a lot of the actual history and a lot of the actual context so that I know that I understand it a little bit more too. I don't know if, is that how you've felt about I, it? I mean, I I think that would be interesting. I'm not sure. I, thinking about this film, I'm, I'm kind of, I feel like it, I, and this is maybe where I circle back to, to thinking of it as propaganda is that I almost feel like that extra context would be, would be interesting, but I don't know that it's necessarily integral to, hmm. to it working because like, uh, many, uh, kind of 
propaganda adjacent uh, works of art, like the important thing is is the emotional response that it engenders in you, and kind of the mm. the clear, the very clear, simple stakes that that it sets up, and that's sort of uh, an integral f- way in which it functions. Mm. So, having that extra context, I think, would help me appreciate it in a more complete way, perhaps. But I don't know that that would be necessary to appreciating it, kind of as itself, if, if that makes sense. I, I suppose so. I don't know. I, I could tell towards the end, there's some imagery that's being drawn on that feels very much of a kind with a lot of um, paintings from Hindu texts that like, I could tell that there was an illusion being made there and I couldn't tell what exactly it was. And so may, maybe I was just emotionally like detached from the movie enough at that point that I kind of almost felt left out, not understanding what those illusions were. Hmm. Um, so I, I did go back a little bit and Raju also goes by the name Ram and his, his love back home, uh, her name is Sita. And those are two, um, avatars of Hindu gods. And so they're, they're kind of drawing on like both his historical context and then also mythological context in hmm. a way that I found kind of interesting and wish I'd understood a little bit more of like, as I was watching it. And at the same time, I can feel myself like trying to, um, I don't know, think about it so much that it almost boils down the meaning a little bit. So maybe you have a point about the getting caught up in the emotion or something, but I'm still curious, you know? Well, uh, if, if you have a chance to rewatch it with that extra context, I'd be interested to, to hear what you, what you, uh, unearth from that experience. Yeah. Uh, but I guess that's, that concludes our journey for purposes of this episode through RRR. Uh, listeners, if you have a chance to watch this film, it's streaming on Netflix, so it's very easily accessible. Mm -hmm. Um, we'd be very interested to hear anyone's thoughts who's had the chance to take that journey, uh, along with us. And, you know, if you have any impressions, obviously share that with us. We'd love to hear it. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at seebelievepod. We're maybe going to lean a little bit more into the bickering side of the buddy movie dynamic a little bit later on in the show with our discussion of kiss kiss bang bang don't go anywhere uh we're going to lean more into the bickering side of the buddy movie dynamic a little bit later on with our review of kiss kiss bang bang when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. So uh, earlier in that segment about RRR, we were talking about this being sort of a dude's rock movie, like just something that's it's it's thrilling just to watch mm-hmm. uh, uh, two guys just be the best bros they can be and engage in all sorts of action sequences. So you actually had a question that you posed on Twitter to sort of tie into that about what our listeners thought the most thrilling movie, like purely thrilling movie they've ever seen has been. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I asked that saying just purely thrilling movie 
And I think a lot of people interpreted that as most thrilling movie I saw in a movie theater, which is not a disappointing like way to go about it. I'm actually really glad of, of the answers that we got back from that. Um, I just thought that that was kind of interesting. And the more I think about it, I think the more thrilled I am, usually the darker the room is and the bigger the screen. I don't mm-hmm. know about you. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that makes total sense. I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's been my experience. Definitely. So we heard from a couple of people. So Lindsay Dunn responded back with, um, you've already gotten some killer options, which we will save for the ending. Um, but she said, let's go with 36th Chamber of Shaolin. I love this zero to hero story with great martial arts. Lindsay, you've got me. I have. I don't think I've seen any Kung Fu movies, like huge gap in my film education. So I think this may be a good one to start off with. I mean, yeah, same here. I haven't, I've seen kind of like, you know, the big ones, you know, I've seen like Bruce Lee movies, but mm-hmm. I haven't really seen, you know, some of the deeper cuts. So 36th Chamber of Shaolin's a blind spot for me as well. It's a fantastic pick. Um, Ron Sturry also responded with Star Wars, the 1977 one. I'm delighted that you said Star Wars and not A New Hope, by the way, Ron. <laughs> While Return of the Jedi was a better movie overall, those of us old enough to experience the original were thunderstruck at seeing a film so wondrous and breathtaking, one that had never before been displayed on the big screen. It is still thrilling to me. And yeah, I, I can't argue with that either. I mean, to, to be honest, if, if, I, if I were going to say, you know, my number one favorite answer to this question would probably be Star Wars New Hope. I Since Ron... Uh, expressed it so well. I'm not going to make that my pick, but that movie just, I, I rewatched it recently just uh, on a impulse and it just, s- s- that original Star Wars, it just moves. It's just paced perfectly. You're mm-hmm. always, you're either onto the next action sequence or onto the next planet. And it's just, there's never a moment where you, where you start like, even think to check your watch. Yeah, that was one of the first live action movies I remember seeing, and I think it scared me. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I can tell you specifically, it was it was the uh, garbage monster. It's called a Dianoga because I am a Star Wars nerd at heart. Um, when the garbage monster's eye stalk pops up out of the oh, out yeah. of the water, I was just like, nope, absolutely not. And I was done with Star Wars for a couple <laughs> of years after that. It's a scary moment for sure. Yeah. Uh, we also heard from uh, Joel Mayward, friend of the show. He's uh, shared his picks uh, with us in past episodes, but he just had four simple words. Mad Max Fury Road. Witness me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, that's that's a great pick. Uh, Christy Olsen also said, you know, she chimed in. She said, came here to say this. Since Mad Max Fury Road is taken, though, I'll go with Mission Impossible Fallout, which is also quite a thrill ride, too. It absolutely is. So I know you and Wade split on Mission Impossible Fallout. Mm -hmm. I am firmly, Wade, I'm with you on this one. If you are listening, I'm I'm definitely on board with Fallout as being a very good movie as well as a good thrill ride. I think I think so when we get to our picks, which we're we're going to do, we we should probably before we do that, we talk about what constitutes a thrill ride. Mm -hmm. See, for me, when when I thought about what movies I would use to answer this film, I have to think like what movies are just like from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. I just feel like I can't catch my breath because I'm so bought in. I'm on the edge of my seat the entire time. Fallout, I think, has some really great scenes, but I don't find myself having that sort of. I, I just can't wait for the next scene to happen experience with Fallout. It's more like I'll rewatch this scene on YouTube a little bit later because it's really great in isolation. But uh, there's a moment midway through that movie where there's like plot twist, plot twist, plot twist, plot twist, like 
one after the other after the other after the other and i think when i saw it in the theater i was like punching the arm of my chair because i was <laughs> so excited so i beg to differ on on the thrill ride all right well there. you know different strokes are different folks but you do have a non-mad max non-Mission Impossible pick, that would be your answer to this question. Yeah, I do. So if, if Joel had not said Mad Max, I definitely would have said Mad Max. I adore Mad Max. But um, when I thought about it a little bit more, um, I think I'm going to have to go with Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity, mm. um, which is a movie that absolutely terrified me when I saw it in the theater. I saw it in IMAX. I was lucky enough to see it on the big, big screen. And one of my greatest fears is being stuck floating in space with no tether. I know that that's not a realistic fear to have whatsoever, but it scares me anyway. And gravity, I think, tapped into that and then also kind of got at like the thrill of touching like the face of majesty and not being able to fully understand it, Hmm. but being able to process it at the same time as well. It's a great movie. I I mean, you know, my wife tells me that I'm not allowed to go to space because (laughs) she is also very frightened about the prospect of just spinning forever into an endless void. You know, whether or not it's realistic that I will ever have occasion to go to space is an open question, but it's by no means an unusual fear, (laughs) if if that helps. Uh, My pick, I was actually surprised that nobody said The Matrix Mm. in answer to this question, because that would be my pick for for this one. If I can't pick Star Wars New Hope, I would pick The Matrix, because that movie, I remember the first time I saw that, having never seen anything like it before, and just being constantly... In awe, both because of the, you know, the Kung Fu is great, obviously. Of course. But also just the the gradual unspooling of what the Matrix is and sort of kind of going on Neo's journey with him. I just, even when there's not an action scene going on, it's an utterly enthralling experience. Oh, yeah, completely agree with you there. That movie makes me want to, like, wear leather pants and sprint across a rooftop. <laughs> and I know those two things are mutually exclusive, but like, I, I still want to do it. You don't it think anyway. about it when you're watching the movie, and that's the important thing. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, listeners, uh, if you have uh, any thoughts, you know, we, we've shared some listener feedback already, but that doesn't mean the question is closed. So if you have any further thoughts about nonstop thrill rides that you would watch again and again, let us know on Twitter over email. We'd love to hear those too. So now we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host makes the other host watch a movie that they've never seen before. And then we talk about it. And usually there's some sort of a connection between the new release that we're talking about and the watch list movie that we're talking about. Sometimes it's there. Sometimes it's not. I think this one's a pretty solid one. So this week we are going to be talking about Shane Black's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which came out in 2005. And here's the official synopsis. Two-bit crook Harry Lockhart, played by Robert Downey Jr., stumbles into an audition for a mystery film while on the run from the cops. Winning the part, he lands in Hollywood, where he's flung into a tangled, murderous conspiracy with his childhood sweetheart, Harmony Lane, played by Michelle Monaghan. There's a Mission Impossible connection there. And hard-boiled private eye Perry Van Shrike, played by Val Kilmer. There's your Top Gun connection there. (laughs) Um, And this movie, I don't know, like... It feels like it connects with RRR on a couple of different levels. There's the kind of friction-y, but also like sort of bromance-y sort of 
partnership, I suppose, uh, between the two main characters. There's also some over-the-top action in this one as well. So, um, Kevin, I'm curious, like, were there any other connections that you were thinking of with this? And also, does this movie hold up from 2005? So, um, in answer to that first question, there's nothing really, there's no real deep connection. I, you, know, like, <laughs> you you tend to play 10th dimensional chess with your connections in the watch list picks. This one, I was just like, I know that RRR is a buddy movie and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is a buddy movie. So let's suggest that one. Cool. Um, I'm overthinking it. <laughs> and, and, I was, and I was also, yeah, I, I was looking forward to revisiting this one because I hadn't seen it in a while. And so I was really, I was looking forward to the opportunity both to share it with you and also to just have an excuse to to rewatch it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was bound to happen eventually with the watch list segment where I would heartily recommend something and be so excited to go back and rewatch it. And then upon rewatching it, realize that it's not quite as good Mm -hmm. as I remember it being. That said, I still like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think it's, you know, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's funny. It's got that Shane Black dialogue, which is its its main attraction and still its main charm. Mm-hmm. But I, watching it, I, I remember just kind of the first time I saw it, just being blown away by how edgy the humor was, uh, the way that Robert Downey Jr.'s Harry is both the protagonist and also the narrator. So there's a lot of, you know, tricks with breaking the fourth wall and sort of throwing in throwing in meta references to the Lord of the Rings movies. And that's that's a lot of fun. The first time I saw it, it was just so uh, it, it kind of blew my mind just how irreverent and fast paced and inventive it was. Watching it now, I, I don't know if it's because I'm just uh, a little bit older, and so that that sense of humor is just kind of not as uh, right in my wheelhouse anymore. Mm-hmm. Or if it's maybe just I've seen more films since I first saw it, you know, t- 15 years ago, and having seen more movies, maybe it doesn't seem quite as revolutionary as it did then. But I feel towards this film a little bit the way I feel about something like like South Park, where you watch it when you're really young and it's just so edgy and funny. <laughs> and then you go back and rewatch it and you're just like, this kind of is immature in, in some ways. And to be honest, there's the, there are parts of this film where the sense of humor was went from being, you know, really edgy and, you know, pitch black to being a little bit I, I hate using the word problematic as, as a straight up like this is bad because it's problematic. But to mm-hmm. be honest, like I felt a little bit uncomfortable with some of the humor with this film mm-hmm. and it didn't sour it completely for it for me. But it, it went from a film that I would full heartedly recommend to anybody mm-hmm. to being a little bit sort of like I, I like it, but I'm a little bit more measured in my praise for it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I came away with on this viewing it wasn't what i expected to come away with Hmm. i'm really curious to know what you came away with though with your experience well first i'm coming away with the fact that you used lord of the rings and irreverent in the same sentence and i'm just going to kind of like bask in that a little bit because i think that's the first time those two like (laughs) concepts have ever ended up in the same (laughs) sentence before i think i'm kind of along the along the same lines with you um I really like watching Robert Downey Jr. play like a dirtbag detective kind of wandering around L.A. I appreciate his performance especially, and also Val Kilmer's quite a bit. I think the leads here have some very good chemistry, and the dialogue, when it's really good, it's really good. This also feels very much of a time with 
2005, where this movie kind of feels like it feels like it's being edgy by pointing out people who are not of the same identity as the person who wrote it. And it's kind of pointing them out and poking at them in, in kind of a way that feels like it's, it's edgy because it's something that is unfamiliar as opposed to it's edgy because it's actually edgy. And I'm referring specifically to Val Kilmer's character um, who is named in the script as gay Perry, um, which is both a a terrible pun. um, And I'm a pun enthusiast, but also it feels like a very regressive view of this one particular character's sexuality in a way where the the script keeps calling attention to it in a way that just does, does not really jive necessarily with modern sensibilities in particular. That's not the only issue I have with it, but that's the one that really stands out to me. I mean, Kilmer's character is interesting in this film because I, I think Kilmer is a strong enough performer that I think he, he, he puts it, pulls it off where it's not, it doesn't feel like, He's just one walking gay joke. He mm-hmm. he feels more complicated, more flushed out than that. I think that's a uh, big credit to Kilmer. I think the the writing on him is also it's not nuanced, I would say, but it's it's good enough that it doesn't feel like the film is just sort of like, oh, isn't it crazy that he's a hard boiled PI who is also gay? Like I feel like that would be easy for a film to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like what this film is doing with the characters a little bit better than that. It's it does it does feel very much like a 2005 sort of. Uh, it dances milieu. up to that cat. It, it dances up to that like mode. I think a couple of times, and it gets really close, and then it just sort of backs off a little bit. And the moments mm. where it does back off from that mode are moments where I I did respect the movie a little bit more. I also really respect Val Kilmer because he doesn't ca- turn the character into a caricature if that Mm -hmm. makes sense i I think it's a really good performance i'm i'm on record as saying that i think both uh robert downey jr and val kilmer have maybe never been better than they are in this film i just think they're they're both so funny and they both find notes to play that they wouldn't necessarily have to i love uh a touch that uh downey jr brings to a moment where he's he's in a he's in a an apartment he's just witnessed uh a man murder a woman, and uh, when he late when he confronts the man, he's holding a gun on him, and he shoots him. Mm-hmm. And in a lesser movie, it would be sort of like, oh yeah, fine. Like he gives the the murderer his comeuppance. Like he, this guy just killed an innocent woman, so he deserves to die. Um, but Ju- Downey Jr. plays the moment as as horrible. Like he he kind of gives a glance down at the dead body of the woman before pulling the trigger again, and you can tell it's. It's sickening to him both that he has witnessed this first murder and it's also sickening to him that he is committing murder in his in his turn. Yeah. I think that's that's a wonderful touch and it goes a long way towards making this film not just sort of like a you know, an an edgelord fest where it's just like it's kind of about like, oh, aren't ain't I a stinker? Um in in the writing. So I think all credit is due there. With for me, I guess I was more uncomfortable with the film's attitudes towards women. Mm. Um, there's there's a line, and it, it's it, a recurring theme is how, um, and, and this is kind of part and parcel of the satire of L.A. culture, where, mm. where it's sort of like it's yeah, you know, everybody wants to be a star, everybody comes out to L.A. to sort of make their fortune, be discovered, and most of them just aren't going to make it. And 
the way that this film maps that dynamic specifically onto women is that all these women are damaged goods. Mm -hmm. Um, They're here because of some sort of sexual trauma and they are, you know, enact, they've, they're enacting it in unhealthy ways and it's kind of pathetic in, in, in the framing that this film puts it in. And that, you know, the first time I saw it, I, I saw that as kind of a, uh, an essential ingredient in the satire and kind of also being part of its noir um, homage. Mm-hmm. Watching it now, it felt a little bit mean-spirited to me. And I, I don't know if that's just, you know, if that's just me here in 2022 uh, having a different perspective or whether that's genuinely a problem. But that was my reaction this time around. It's funny because you get at the exact problem that I had with this movie, too. So I, I don't think it's just like maybe necessarily just you in 2022. I, I think that... My main problem with this movie is that we learn exactly why Harmony and then her sister, who also is kind of off screen, but but plays a pretty crucial role throughout the course of the plot of this movie. We learn precisely why these two characters are messed up people. And we learn a lot of like sad, sordid backstory details about the both of them in a way that feels like it almost glances over it. Like it's a piece of color that needs to be there because we need to understand why these two particular women are like as the movie says, damaged goods. We never get that same level of detail for Harry or for Perry. You just don't get it. Their their backstories are essentially blank slates. We know that one's a detective and one is a small-time crook. And that's all that you need to know about those characters. And I think I would respect this movie a little bit more if it had been willing to step back and give that same courtesy to a lot of its female characters as well. Hmm. But it's not interested in doing that. And I think that it... It might be that Shane Black thought that he was, I don't know, giving these women like more of a backstory so that makes them more rounded. But to me, it it kind of feels like it's playing the trauma card just for the sake of having trauma in a character's backstory in a way that didn't feel earned or necessary, just as a way to kind of like tie off a plot end on some level. And that that just it didn't sit right with me. Well, it's it's instructive to sort of compare this film to the noir stories that it's very much mm-hmm. uh, explicitly dealing with. I mean, that um, Harmony, uh, a key part of her character is that she loves these pulp detective novels um, that are all, you know, kind of the standard hard-boiled detective fiction where there's this uh, private detective who, who plays by his own rules and he encounters a succession of women who uh, are in some way uh the the classic uh, fit into the classic noir archetypes like the the femme fatale mm-hmm. or or the the honey pots trap um and it's this film is kind of trying to dialogue with that in a way but i think what's int- what's interesting is that if you watch a lot of these classic noir films i haven't really read a lot of hardwell detective fiction but noir films like a lot of the times the 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 femme fatale is um she doesn't have to have some sort of trauma that explains why she's the way she is she just kind of is that way and you just sort of buy into it as that's the the sort of universe that this film exists in and i think this film kind of it wants to kind of have its cake and eat it too where it wants to have like these very simplistic female characters but also kind of wants to complicate them but that kind of just calls attention to how simplistic they are Mm -hmm. and and it doesn't work quite as well even though 
I don't think you can fully say it's it's misogynistic in in just it, it despises these characters. Like Shane Black is obviously trying to do something with them, but I think it's it's kind of tacitly misogynistic in that it's, it's not just interested in them as people maybe yeah yeah 100 percent. and i think it is also a credit to michelle monahan's performance that i did still really like her character quite a bit even mm-hmm. though in places the writing just makes absolutely no sense to me she is blasé where i think she should be a little bit more careful and she's also careful where i think she should be a little bit more reckless and like some of those those ends of her character didn't quite meet for for me, necessarily, she feels a little bit more like like a plot device than a fully realized character. Whereas you have Robert Downey Jr. and you have Val Kilmer just sort of bouncing off each other, trading <laughs> barbs constantly. Like, I don't know. I, I could watch Robert Downey Jr. like tap out a cigarette and light it and like walk mournfully down an L.A. street nonstop. Would be very happy about that. I don't think you even need to tack on a movie to that. Just show me that film reel or that footage. I, I think the movie's at its strongest when it's like you said, just letting Kilmer and Down Jr. just bounce off each other. There's there's just a joy in watching Shane Black write two men kind of just bickering with each other about nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the, so uh, I, I don't like his film, The Nice Guys, as much as I like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Okay. But The Nice Guys has what I think is kind of a quintessential Shane Black moment where uh, there are these two characters. I think they're they're also trying to transport a body. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, while they're dragging this corpse around, you know, it's obviously just a, an insane situation. Instead of focusing on the task at hand, they're squabbling over the correct way to pronounce the name uh, Baryshnikov. Yes. And I think that's sort of, that's Shane Black in a nutshell. And I think that's why he's his films are so much fun to watch sometimes is... That dynamic is just endlessly entertaining. And I think that at its best, this movie kind of has those moments where <laughs> uh, Robert Downey Jr. at one point accidentally urinates on, on a dead body. And it's it's not like it's 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 totally I mean, it's not innocent, but it's not something he does intentionally. And yet the stretch of dialogue where he tries to explain this to Val Kilmer's character is really funny because he he's trying to explain it and uh perry is not buying it at all for obvious reasons Mm -hmm. and that's that's really enjoyable and i feel like i i would have loved the film to just stay on that wavelength forever (laughs) it's funny because that particular wavelength i think got a little bit too puerile for me honestly like that was a scene that didn't work for me okay yeah what does work for me is the back and forth rapid fire of one like i mean the dialogue where robert downey jr is talking to perry about what happened like that back and forth kind of works for me a little bit like almost a who's on first but grosser um but i think it's it's the two of them actively sniping at each other where they're both able to score points i think is what really works for me so much of what Robert Downey Jr. is doing here is playing like kind of vulnerable and like helpless almost in a way. And he's great in those pieces, but where the movie really sings is where the two of them are just kind of going at it with each other or where he's going at it with harmony. And again, that's this, this is the place where Michelle Monaghan's performance also really works for me is they get a couple of like lines of screamed dialogue back and forth at each other throughout a door. That's kind of a repeated motif throughout the whole movie. And 
each time I feel like you learn a little bit more about these characters' insecurities while they're talking to each other in a way that makes both of them more interesting and maybe a little bit more pathetic, but more interesting than pathetic, if mm-hmm. that makes any sense. So I'm also, a, I'm a little bit mixed on the nice guys. I think I like it a little bit more than you do. And that's mostly on Ryan Gosling's performance mm-hmm. in particular. Like the man can scream <laughs> really, really, really well. I think there's a scene where he breaks into a bar that is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And it mostly just involves like a lot of the physical comedy that's going on. And there's some of that in here too, but I don't think kiss, kiss, bang, bang quite reaches those same heights that the physical comedy and the dialogue and the chemistry between the two main characters gets to in the nice guys. I I wonder, I think that maybe the thing with black is he's kind of the, the key to a, a black movie is just the craft of it. Like he's so mm-hmm. interested in just the funny things that you can do with language, the, the, the funny, the different ways that a character placed in a certain situation will react in a very human way mm-hmm. uh, that continually escalates uh, the comedy in, in surprising and, and interesting ways. It, it's a little bit like watching a, like a Buster Keaton movie mm-hmm. where it's not so much about Buster Keaton pulling faces and being crazy because he doesn't do that at all. It's just he's just sort of doing these amazing stunts and capturing all these amazing um, uh, amazing actions uh, with the camera. And that's where the joy comes from is just watching him do that and be amazing at it. And Black is sort of like the Buster Keaton of odd couple bickering. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's a scene in this movie where Perry and Harry have witnessed a body getting dumped by a lake. And um, one of them has to like Perry, Perry has to use his gun basically to, in order to retrieve the body because it's stuck in the trunk of a car. And after the body has been retrieved and Perry and Harry are outside of the lake, just sort of bickering with each other. um, They both decide completely opposite, like, points of action that they need to take. Harry obviously does not want to be anywhere near the cops because he is a thief and he is wanted for for various uh, crimes and misdemeanors. Whereas Perry's normal modus operandi is to go to the police because he is a private detective. And the two of them having the complete opposite decision made at the exact same time and then them bickering about how and why to go about it, I think works beautifully it's also kind of summed up in harry's decision to throw perry's gun into the lake in order to hide the evidence because he's not thinking several steps ahead with what the police are going to do once they have to start dragging the lake and he also wants to get the incriminating stuff as as far away from him as possible in a short amount of time as possible and i think you get a lot of good information about how both of these characters not just what their motivations are but how they think about them in a way that kind of demonstrates like how they approach the world. And then you get some really good friction out of it. And I think it's that friction between the two of them where they're trying to reconcile their basically irreconcilable differences under a very high stress situation. Um, that's just comedy gold. So that I appreciated very much. Uh, well, I think that that's, and so much of comedy is about surprise mm-hmm. and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is so good at, you know, kind of making you see these these little um, cliches and conventions that you've seen in movies and you just don't 
question them like oh yeah if you want to get rid of a gun you just throw it in a lake yeah and then so a character does that because he's seen the same movies that we have <laughs> and the other character op- points out how obviously stupid that is and i and that's where the comedy comes from is, is you're constantly encountering these little things that you take for granted and black is pointing them out and saying like well that's silly why why would you take something like that for granted and that's really enjoyable and i think that when the film does that as well with its its satire of you know la and just sort of maybe american entertainment culture in general Mm -hmm. um i think the movie really sings i think that maybe where it falls down a little bit for me here on this rewatch for me is that there are some assumptions that maybe makes about women Mm -hmm. that are aren't surprising it's sort of playing into the same tropes that every other movie does uh, and it isn't maybe as smart about it as it as it think it thinks it is. I feel like it does fall into the traps that it's trying to point out repeatedly. Like there's there's a couple of scenes where um, I don't know Robert Downey Jr.'s character, very honorable man, which I appreciated very much. It was nice to have a dirtbag character who also wasn't a dirtbag with women necessarily, but he gets caught in kind of like a compromising situation with Harmony, where she. Um, doesn't understand like what he's doing in the room that they're in necessarily. And he, he has like a valid excuse that is very like over the top and and not really believable necessarily. And then once he's proven right, she just kind of accepts it as at face value and says like, I trust you, even though even up until that point, she hasn't really demonstrated any of that trust. And I think it's that turning on a dime, like you would expect her to still be upset by this situation. And yet she isn't, like there, there's a lack of character follow through, I think. And it's, mm. it's a kind of care that is taken with the male characters because they do have that very clear, like through line of how they operate in the world that this character just doesn't. So yeah, I'm, I'm on board with you. Yeah. There. That the, the process, I guess is th- there's so much care lavished on the process of being a gumshoe mm-hmm. for the men. And you kind of wish that maybe that same kind of interest in the process of being who harmony is would have been evidence as well maybe. yeah like i'm i'm curious about the process of being a failed actor because that's what she is that sounds like an interesting thing to explore a little bit too um one thing that i do want to explore is what is up with shane black and christmas movies <laughs> and also why have you made me watch two separate christmas movies not at christmas time so far i i mean i can't speak to the the first one, like mm-hmm. Shane Black, maybe he's just kind of a a, a Scrooge at heart. <laughs> um, uh, who who knows? Maybe Ebenezer Scrooge, had he been born in a different time and place, would have would have been making these sorts of movies. Um, as for as for the second, I don't know. I guess I guess I just like me a Christmas movie and get get some holiday cheer, even in the dog days of summer liturgical calendar was made for a reason i I am anti-christmas unless it is actively christmas time (laughs) well we can get into a whole discussion about whether the trappings of american christmas are even the same thing as the liturgical calendar christmas fair point but there's only so much time (laughs) in an episode of seeing and believing so maybe we'll call it there uh that was our review of kiss kiss bang bang if any of you listeners out there uh watched along with us we'd be interested in your thoughts on this film if you were exposed for the first time or whether this was a rewatch for you what your reaction was this time around very interested to to hear your thoughts on that um next week Mm -hmm. we are going to be reviewing 
a, a film that I'm I'm really excited about. I know you're excited about too, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. I have been looking forward to this movie ever since it was first announced. It might be the movie I'm looking forward to the most this year. So we are going to be reviewing Jordan Peele's Nope, which I am extremely excited about. Um, cannot wait to watch it. Hopefully have a good conversation about it as well. Um, and then pairing with it in the watch list. So we've watched a lot of horror movies this summer. And Nope looks like it's going to be on the horror thriller side of things. And I am I am not made of stone. I love a good horror movie, but I also want to balance it out a little bit. So I think we're, we're going to branch out a little bit. So this one is kind of plays into that 10-dimensional chess that I like to play <laughs> with right. watch list picks. Um, but the Nope trailer starts off with one of the characters pointing out that the first movie is of a black man riding a horse. And so I was thinking about getting into some of that maybe a little bit more forgotten, like left by the wayside film history and maybe watch a movie about black cowboys. And so we are going to be covering Buck and the Preacher, which is a 1972 movie. It was directed by Sidney Poitier and it stars him and Harry Belafonte, which is absolutely like a combination for the ages. This movie is accessible on streaming in a couple of different places. It's also coming out on the Criterion Collection later on this year. And this is also a watch list first because I have also not seen this movie. So Kevin, you and I are going to go exploring together and hopefully I'm not steering us wrong. I'm all for that. I I don't know if I how embarrassed I should be about this, but I had not even heard of Buck and the Preacher before you suggested for the watch list segment. So this is going to be completely virgin territory for me, and I am all looking forward for that. Can't wait. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?